With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio.
brings to Americans the absolute best fundamentals of rifle marksmanship program in the United States today, the absolute best. Nobody does it like we do it. Uh, really, nobody really does it much at all anymore, and certainly not to the high standards that we do. And uh, we've really found a niche in what we do, and that's bringing uh, the shooting sports and rifle marksmanship to new shooters and reintroducing it to, to folks who have been shooting at different times in their lives, but uh, decided they've got they wanted to get serious about it. They actually wanted to to learn the skills and techniques that it takes to become a rifleman. And the Appleseed Project does this every weekend of the year uh, at a location within reasonable driving distance to you. You want to find out what's going on, you can go to rwva.org. That's the home page. On the home page, there's a list of tabs on the top of the page. And uh, the second one from the left says Appleseed. You put your cursor on that, you'll get a drop-down menu. On the drop-down menu, select Schedule. I'll take you to a page that has a map of the United States on it, sectioned off by states. You can put your cursor on the state and find the uh, all of the locations throughout the year on that state. Or... If you want to find out what's going on all across the nation, there's a hot link embedded in the text above that. You can put your cursor on that, give it a click, it'll give you all of the events across the nation. Once you've done that, once you've found uh, the locations that are available, what I'd like for you to do is take a look at those and then select one that is the right location and the right date for you and then don't think about going to an event. Don't think about attending an event. Select the event, click on it, pre-register for the event, and attend it. Uh, usually I tell you guys almost every week that a lot of folks' lives have a lot of uh, I wish I would have, I should have, I, I could have in them. Don't let this be one of those. Make sure that you put uh, attending a an Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship Weekend high up on your list. Make it a priority, and then go to an event. Set yourself a goal of improving your rifle marksmanship. I can guarantee you, you're going to meet and exceed that goal. And then ask yourself, what next? What can I do next to improve my skills? Uh, what can I do next to uh, to make myself a better person, to put myself on the path to being a rifleman? What can I do to to help make my home better, my family better, my community better, my city, my county better, my state better? What can I do to make this a better nation? And that's where we're going to try and point you in the direction to do just that. So go to rwva.org, the home page. Look at the list of tabs across the top. Put your cursor on one that says Appleseed. Get the drop-down menu. On the drop-down menu, select Schedule. Click on that, and then that will take you to the locations. Find a location that uh, you'd like to attend, and then attend it. <clears throat> All right. Uh, at the beginning of each show, uh, we offer you guys a chance to uh, call in and 
tell your local cruise thanks, and uh, tonight's no different. Everybody, every single person listening, every uh, person running a crew at Appleseed has a, uh, a great group of folks working with them. And, uh, and each and every one of those folks deserves a big pat on the back. Uh, tonight I'd like to thank uh, uh, Andrew and Lauren McCrim in the uh, Texas crew. They're the folks from uh, DFW area, uh, Star Fox and Double L, uh, for the job that they're doing in the DFW area. They've got a great crew that they're building up there. They've, they've managed to get several ranges on the books, even had a range specially built for them at the uh, Quill Creek Range. Uh, they're working closely with several other organizations, the Diva organization with uh, uh, several companies up there, including uh, uh, Cheaper Than Dirt and Bass Pro, uh, stuff like that, and, and building uh, relationships with them in order to further the program in their neck of the woods. So they're doing a great job up there. And I'm not talking about just them. Because obviously they don't do it all themselves. It's uh, it's a whole crew of folks, but they're the folks that uh, have put it together. So I want to thank them. I'd like to thank the folks in our Fredericksburg crew, uh, Tanya Benson and Roger Glenn, uh, for the great job that they have been doing there and keeping the events running in Fredericksburg, and then also uh, doing their seven stepping work spreading the word of Appleseed, and then helping folks find the path that they need in order to become more involved in defending the freedoms and liberties that living in this nation affords them. So thank you to you guys. I'd like to thank uh, Kirby Foster, Scuzzy, uh, on the Texas crew, because he works tirelessly doing the... uh, the IT stuff, you know, the uh, the stuff that nobody understands or uh, in most cases wants to understand, uh, running the software and uh, building up the programs, mining data, etc., uh, helping the, the Texas Appleseed crew and uh, the overall national crew with uh, his labor, I and mean, the great job that he did in setting up the homeschooling uh, interactive network. Uh, I told you guys quite a bit that homeschoolers, if you guys haven't contacted your homeschoolers group, this is a really important niche to be uh, to be looking at in order to partner with Appleseed. Uh, Appleseed fits the bill for a good many of the whole homeschooling programs. Uh, as far as serving as a uh, like a physical activity, as a uh, educational activity for history, and uh, in many cases, when you get a uh, when you talk to the homeschoolers and get them to attend an event, it's not just one kid that comes. You know, it's the the kid, the the parents. The parents are usually hooked up to the rest of the homeschooling group. So we end up running uh, maybe one or two other families and their kids, and uh, it's just a great group to work with. When homeschoolers are on the line, I'm telling you, they are the they're some of the sharpest and the most respectful 
kids I've ever seen. It's always yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. They listen to the instruction. They do what you ask, and uh, just a great group of folks. <laughs> then uh, I want to remind you guys that uh, uh, the Colorado folks have set up the uh, apple seed presents at uh, the South Carolina Tech Boat in the DFW area on February 10th and the 11th. And, uh, and if Jim, I almost said Tim again, if Jim and his wife, uh, if they're listening, uh, if you guys want to call in and give us an update on that, we would uh, that would be greatly appreciated uh, because that's coming up in a couple of weeks. The Self-Reliance Expo is... Uh, is part of what is rapidly becoming very mainstream, and that's the prepping community. And the prepping community has become uh, huge. And this is another area that if Appleseed uh, taps into this, if you guys start making your contacts among the prepping community, uh, I think that you'll be amazed at the uh, at the the great amount of return that you'll get for any time spent there. Uh, the prepping community, unlike the the, the, like the gun culture, uh, the majority of them don't have uh, any firearms experience. So they're, when you talk to them about coming to an event and getting some rifle marksmanship uh, instruction, they're not already uh, individually prejudiced by the fact that they already know what they're doing, et cetera, because they're gun folks. These are folks who say, you know what, uh, I'm looking for education in all facets of uh, uh, of self-improvement, and rifle marksmanship is one of them. And if you say that uh, you guys are putting on the best fundamentals of rifle marksmanship program in the nation, a two-day course for just uh, 70 bucks, then, yeah, we're going to go. I'm going to bring myself, my wife, my kids, my neighbors, etc. I'm going to bring the whole prepping group with me. So, <clears throat> Try and uh, and look at making inroads into the prepping community, and then doing your best. The uh, same thing with the the homeschooling group. And uh, once again, if you want to call in, we'll be glad to take your calls at three four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero. And uh, it looks like we have a uh, one. Okay, I'm going to let. Uh, with the call screen or talk to him real quick and see what if he just wants to talk or listen or what. Uh, but if you guys want to call in and uh, give thanks to any of your local crew members, now's the time to do it. And uh, and then we're going to get started on the history. We're going to continue on with the uh, Burgoyne campaign. And that's going to include uh, the uh, the Battle of Oriskany. But we also, before we get to that, we want to talk about the precursor to the battle, which was uh, the Battle of Valcour Island. And uh, I've spoken to you about these individual events before. We're going to go over them again in the context of the uh, of the Burgoyne campaign and, uh, and kind of tie them all in together. And the, the Burgoyne campaign may take a little while to get through, but it's very important that we do get through it because... It was one of the most important campaigns 
of the American Revolutionary War. Uh, it was a deciding campaign. The way that the campaign was decided, uh, in all reality, it was uh, it was when the Burgoyne campaign failed, and uh, and it came to a halt and was stopped. The the revolution, the American Revolutionary War, for all intents and purposes, had really been won by the colonists. Not that it didn't end; it continued on for uh, another five bloody years. But but we had really stopped everything in its tracks and uh, moved the American Revolutionary War to the south. Uh, all right. Uh, before we get into that. Jim must have been within the range of my hearing because he's called in. Jim, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, sir. Well, you're, I asked you to, to call in so that you could give us an update on the uh, uh, Self-Reliance Expo. So take it away. Well, thank you. Yes, uh, I've been working really hard, so I really don't have an update. Uh, everything is still a go. We're looking forward okay. to to being down there. I did want to mention, though, if I may, how this kind of came about, um, in case it uh, maybe encourages other folks. Kim and I, my wife, are the uh, Colorado State Coordinators, and we knew that we were not doing a good job at promotion. So uh, uh, Orange Hat showed up. Uh, we actually promoted him. And a mountain Man Prepper, and he had it on his mind that we weren't doing good, good promotions. And we kind of talked to each other the same. We, we both wanted to have the same conversation. So it actually it worked out pretty well. I wasn't twisting an arm or anything. And uh, he said he would be glad to do promotions for Colorado. So Mountain Mountain Prepper is our promotions coordinator. Well, we had heard uh, a year or more ago about the self-reliance expo uh, from, from a, uh, another instructor. And we looked into it, and it wasn't something we could afford. Uh, it was, like I say, about $1,000 a table, and that's just not something that was realistic for us. Uh, right, Mountain Man Pepper, Peter, uh, came to us the next year, this last year, and said, you know, what about the Self-Reliance Expo? I said, have at it. You know, if you can get us in there for a reasonable price, then go ahead and do that. And so he made contact with them, and they said, we'll get back with you. He had to persevere. I believe there was a – he sent at least six emails to them without response. Uh, they were busy. Until it was like two days before the Expo – they said, sorry, we didn't get back to you. Sure, you can have a table. If he wasn't being persistent, even though there was no response, we never would have gotten into that venue. Um, so if it was me, I would have sent an email, I would have been done. But uh, right. Peter Peter uh, saw that as something that was good for us, and so he he pursued that. Uh, well, you know what, so, you've, got a, you've got a great point, because... Uh, perseverance is actually is going to be the number one thing in your promotions. But also, I want to before you go. I know you got some more, but uh, I want to mention that uh, the gun shows, different shows that they have, uh, because Appleseed is a nonprofit organization, and uh, and we're willing to, we're not selling anything. We're uh, you know we're going to come in and we're going to provide uh, uh, information, instruction, everything like that. Uh, a lot of the shows will donate a table to you if you have if they have some tables free. So 
So if you're going to go to a gun show or something like that, talk to them about getting them to donate a table to you uh, for free so that you don't have to spend your own money on it. And uh, anyway, Jim, go ahead. Keep going with what you've got. Sure. So that's uh, about what I had about how we got into the Self-Reliance Expo. But Peter also contacted Mountain Rare Prepper, the, uh, what is it, Czech Christian Home Educators Conference or something like that uh, in Colorado. And they have a yearly uh, homeschool convention. It's a pretty big one. I, we homeschooled our son, and we had gone to it before. And, again, he worked with them a little bit, and now we're in uh, final stages of negotiation, if you can call it that, that uh, we're going to do the same thing we're doing at the Self-Reliance Expos. We will have a table, and also there we're trying to figure out how to do a pellet gun range at the, the homeschool conference. And that really seems to be kind of a draw. Um, if it's uh, like we talked about last week, if it's something where the, the participants can actually do something, um, once you get them get them past the idea of you're going to be shooting in our conference, then uh, oh, my wife just told me the Chet conference has about four thousand people, so it's a pretty good conference, right? Um, but anyway, so we're working with that, and we're, we will have a – I believe it's in June, but I could be wrong on that. We will have a pellet gun range there also if things work out. Uh, so that's a, that might be something. It's a little expensive. It's a lot of work, but it might be something that uh, will get us into to other areas, different different groups to talk to where that's appropriate. Absolutely, because – like you're saying, anytime, and it doesn't have to even be a pellet gun. Just if you can get a table at one of these places, and you can have some stuff there, some uh, American Revolutionary War type uh, uh, muskets, musket balls, uh, you know, flint, uh, some uh, pre-made uh, paper cartridges, etc. Any of the stuff that people can put their hands on. Then, then you can you can slow them down there on their river raft past your table, long enough to talk to them while they're fondling the stuff, and uh, and get them interested. And when with you guys having the pellet range there, that is a tremendous uh, draw because it's going to cause folks to they're going to stop. They want to get they're going they're going to want to get involved. They're want to going to put their hands on it. The longer they're standing there, the, the more opportunity you have to speak to them. So that's absolutely fantastic. And uh, in my in the beginning uh, of the show tonight, I was talking to the folks about the fact that the prepping community has taken a while. It's taken a while for it to evolve, uh, I don't know, what, 25 years or so now from, from folks who were saying they were, uh, I don't know, in the beginning they were survivalists, which was a really spooky term for anybody hearing it. And, uh, now it's finally uh, evolved and gone mainstream, and the prepping community is huge. I mean, it's tremendously huge, and and I believe we were talking last week about the fact that it's much easier to get the folks in the prepping community to come to an event than it is to get somebody from the gun culture. Gun culture yep. folks, they, they already know everything. They already know everything. They're already doing everything. They're already doing everything perfect, and uh, it's a really hard sell. You want an easier sell, get involved with the prepping community 
Uh, and there should be ways uh, in each state. You know, I, I'm involved with the Perkman community, so I know that uh, you can go online, you can start, you can Google for for any state, and they'll have a huge amount of different groups, uh, different communities they've put together. And these people are hungry for this. Mm-hmm. The, I was going to also mention that when we contacted the Self Reliance Expo. Uh, part of the, what got us in was we offered them four free shoots. I said, you know, you give us a table, we'll give you shoots. They're worth $70 a piece. It didn't cost us a thing. I mean, it cost us a free shoot, but that's that's not money out of the pocket. Um, and so we've done that in a number of other situations where we'll just offer a offer a shoot. You know, why don't you, we'll give you, if you show up, we'll give you a free shoot. You let us, you know, uh, be at your festival we'll, we'll give out some free shoots um so that absolutely that the other thing we do absolutely and i've to. talked to many folks including fred and fred's behind the idea too of uh of using the free certificates and free shoots and stuff as currency in promotion uh and we can even go to uh you know one of my big my pet promotion ideas is radio and uh mm-hmm. You can take the free certificates. Say you take six or seven free certificates to the radio station, and you say, "Look, I'll be willing to give you these to give away for free if you will mention us. Uh, you know, uh, for the next uh, three or four days, you can give these certificates away on the air. They'll be glad to do it. So, with those, uh, with those five or, or six or seven certificates, uh, you know, what is that? Uh, you know, three hundred fifty bucks or so. You can buy yourself." Uh, Three or four thousand dollars worth of radio advertising. Yep. So greasing the folks' palms with uh, free certificates is an excellent way to get your foot in the door, get folks to take a second look at what you're doing, etc. Uh, what else do you guys have uh, uh, up your sleeves? I know you're still not ready for the for the thing I was talking to you about last week. Yeah, probably, not but yet. We'll, what we'll else do you guys have? Besides the uh, Self-Reliance Expo and the homeschoolers, anything else that you have cooking up on the pot? Well, right between right now life and uh, and living, yeah, well, that, those, that's the big things we have going. We have a lot of uh, – we have several people, uh, Colorado Boots, who gets us to, oh, what are they, the nine nine twelve groups to constitutional uh what are they? Constitutional boot camps. Some of those things that we have in our area. But those are the right now the big ones I, I'd like to talk about. The just one thing I was going to mention is that when we're at these expos, we're not shy about giving away flags and T-shirts either. We will ask people, you know, what, what's the you know the first Second Amendment to the Constitution? What's the Third Amendment? And if you can come back within 15 minutes and tell me what that is, I'll give you a T-shirt. Because nobody, exactly. hardly anybody knows the Third Amendment, and most of them can go back into their smartphone and get it, but they're doing a little bit of research, and it's like, wow, I never knew that was the Third Amendment. So we can get them involved very easily uh, just by teasing them with a T-shirt or something like that. Well, I'm really excited about uh, about the event coming up, and uh, I've talked a bunch of the uh, the local Texas folks into going. I've even talked a bunch of uh, of my fellow preppers into going, and I'm going to outfit them all in Appleseed T-shirts before they go. 
Because I figure if we have uh, 25 or 30 folks with Appleseed T-shirts wandering around, all the better for us. Yep. I would agree with that. So that's well, what I had, which uh, wasn't too much this evening. Maybe next week I'll have more to talk about. But uh, Okay. We're, right. we're still listen, a go. Things are still good. Don't let uh, – don't let life get in between you and this right here, okay? Uh, get <laughs> get rid to. of all that excess, that superfluous stuff like jobs and that, eating that and That's right. mortgage. Get rid of that stuff and just get down to business. Well, you know, <laughs> trying to get rid of the mortgage, so. <laughs> all right, well, Jim, thank you very much. Thank your wife, too, uh, you guys, for, for taking on the position of uh, uh, state coordinator in Colorado. And then... And then doing your job. Now, you mentioned earlier, you said uh, that you, uh, I don't know if you had an epiphany or if it was brought on to you by uh, Mountain Man Prepper, but when you said, to, hey, I'm not, uh, we're not doing our job of uh, promotions, that's a, that's a blanket uh, or should be a blanket uh, confession uh, by all of the folks because uh, promotions, there, there's no one single individual in the program who is, Responsible for all of all of the promotions. Promotions are uh, the responsibility of every single person involved with the program, and there is low tech and high tech methods, and uh, it doesn't matter which route you go, but everybody has uh, the responsibility. And I know that a lot of the folks in the program they always think, well, somebody else is going to do the promotions. I'm going to do the instruction at the event and, you know, help set up the event and stuff like that and run the apple seed. I'm sure somebody else is doing the promotions. But that's one of the problems that we have is that, is that everybody's thinking that. And everybody should move move that thought around to where they are saying, I'm in charge of promotions. In addition to the shoot that I'm getting around, I'm also in charge of promotions. So let me make sure that I'm doing that too. And uh, a lot of people are doing good promotion jobs, but I would like to make sure that everybody – remembers that each and every person in the program is an Appleseed Promotions Ambassador. So be constantly on uh, the prowl for new ideas, new ways to push the program. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing from you next week, Jim, uh, for an update on this. And I look forward to seeing you guys and working with you in uh, Dallas in a few weeks. Uh, We are also. All right, so be sure and call in next week. I will. All right, thank you, Jim. Uh Bye-bye. All right. Uh, I meant to ask him if uh, if the uh, uh, if getting the uh, expo table or getting the homeschoolers table if that had uh, if it had been uh, any kind of a painful or blood shedding experience. But he would have mentioned that had it been right. So we can go on the assumption that it wasn't and. The reason I'm saying that is because I want you guys to understand that uh, that just asking for something is never going to, well, uh, all right. Most of the time, asking for something is not going to get you punched in the eye. So make sure that you're constantly asking for things, asking for space uh, at a gun show. And like I said, because uh, Appleseed is a nonprofit organization, you can usually get uh, them to donate a table. Uh, it may not be, you know, you may not be able to select where it is or anything, but I know of 
uh, two events already that we've had over the last couple of years where the, the tables they donated were right there at the front door. Had to walk right past the Appleseed table first before you got anywhere else. And uh, uh, and they did a great job. Uh, most of the folks now have heard about Appleseed. So all they need is a little bit of prompting, a little bit of pushing, uh, give them some free stuff at the table, and head them toward an event. <clears throat> all right. Uh, we'll keep the lines open. 347. 3088790347308 So you can call in if you have any questions. If you uh, want to thank somebody as we're going along, you remember that uh, you wanted to thank somebody because uh, myself and the co-hosts, I'm sure we've told you several times now that uh, we have 50 lines. If it weren't free, i got to pay for them, 50, 50 phone lines, because we anticipated that when we open the lines for you guys to uh, thank your buddies, the guys that uh, show up on the line next to you every week, that the phone lines would be burned down. And uh, the co-host and I said, yeah, we've gotta, we're going to have to expand the phone lines because if we start uh, letting folks tell each other, thank you for doing a good job, we're going to get overrun. So... Don't make uh, don't make my co-host and I look like uh, goobers, all right? When you give you an opportunity to call in and say thanks, go ahead and do that. Because at Appleseed, we're more than willing to work you like a dog and uh, and to squeeze every drop out of you uh, in order for the mission to continue. And, you know... If it was if this was just a social organization or just a rifle marksmanship uh, organization, then uh, then you would look at that and you'd say, well, that's that's terrible. Uh, but it's not. We have a much more important mission. Uh, we're trying to ensure that the freedoms and liberties that living in this nation affords us that they remain in place. And it's a very important mission. That being said, there's no reason that uh, that we can't thank the folks who are doing their jobs every weekend because, let me tell you, I don't have to tell any of you guys, any of you guys doing uh, Appleseed, I don't have to tell you that Appleseed is hard. It's hard. It's, uh, it's hard time-wise. It's hard to give up that uh, weekend, uh, in a lot of cases, uh, one weekend every month that you're that you are uh, setting aside to run an apple feed event. It is hard financially. Uh, a lot of times, it's stressful trying to get all the work done, and uh, it's not just the weekends. We've got. Uh, We've got, and most of us put in a lot of uh, additional time doing uh, uh, online work and promotions or setting up ranges, etc. All that kind of extra stuff. So it's hard. Apple seed is hard. No, nobody said it wasn't. All right, it's hard. And and a lot of times, folks get uh, uh, get the, they feel the weight on their shoulders. All right. And I also want to take this time to tell folks, look, if it's 
if apple seed is getting hard or it's getting uh, it's putting stress in your life, there's no reason you can't take a uh, take a breather. You know, set out for a while and uh, get some uh, relief in your life. All right, I'm not telling everybody to do this at once. I'm just saying. If you need to take a break, take a break. Nobody's going to uh, yell at you for that. And then I want to tell the folks that are doing their jobs uh, and doing the events and donating their time and and money and uh, and accepting the responsibility of this, I want to tell them thanks. I want to tell each and every person out there thank you. Because I know it's hard. I and mean, like I said, I don't have to tell you guys because you know it's hard too. It's a hard job. And I'm very proud of all of the folks who do this, who, who willingly give their time, set aside their time, and, and donate their time and efforts to this. So thanks to all of you guys in what you do, and uh, you have my my appreciation, and know that I'm I'm proud of each and every one of you guys. All right, like I said, we'll keep the lines open so that uh, so that you guys can uh, burn down the lines, and uh, so everybody thanks. But we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, what we're doing now is we're continuing on with the uh, Burgoyne campaign. Of 1777, uh, Burgoyne had put forth a uh, a plan for a three pronged attack. Uh, he was going to attack uh, down the uh, uh, down the uh, Champlain Valley from Canada, uh, while there was going to be another attack from Lake Ontario and then another attack up the Hudson so that there would be a three-pronged attack that would basically uh, isolate the colonial forces and uh, destroy several of their strong points. This was the intended plan. Now, originally, uh, in at the end of 1770, or at the beginning of 1776, there was uh while the uh, while Boston was under siege and there wasn't a whole lot going on at the time uh there was a plan to invade Canada and when that went on, a large force was dispatched to Canada, and they fought there they were repelled and began retreating back uh to the United to uh, New York. Now, at the beginning, uh, at the during the summer of 1776, the British forces actually began to attack south and uh, were stopped on Lake Champlain. <clears throat> and I told you this was, if you read about Arnold's campaign uh, to attack. Canada, you'll be completely amazed. You know, we we think about the American Revolutionary War 
uh, most of the time when we think about it, we see it uh, like the final battle in uh, in the one of the Mel Gibbons movies, The Patriots. We see it like that. You know, it's a sunny day and uh, the weather is uh, it's very nice, and you know, folks are in their short sleeves and stuff like that, and it's nice and breezy, and uh, and it's a uh, you know very uh, regimented type of campaign. You have the uh, uh, British regulars and their redcoats on one side, and you have the American, uh, the, you have the colonial army in their blue uniforms on the other side facing each other. That was uh, the exception. It wasn't the rule. Most of the campaigns, most of the battles that were fought, were fought in in pretty horrific conditions. Uh, as far as weather, as far as the condition of the men involved, uh, most of the forces were never in uniform uh, because they were militia forces, or they were colonial forces that. Uh, that hadn't been issued uniforms. <clears throat> so Arnold attacked uh, into Canada by making his own trail along a river, by pulling his uh, boats upstream, and uh, this was in cold weather. And they were pulling the boats upstream in places breaking ice, and whenever they came to the falls, and for those around New York, you know that the the rivers there have quite a few falls on them. And uh, when you came to the falls, it meant you would have to disassemble the boats, carry them in pieces up, up past the falls, reassemble them, and then start dragging them again. And this is in cold, icy weather. All right? Well, they did that. They fought. They were repelled. And they reestablished themselves back on Lake Champlain. All right, well, the forces were beginning to attack uh, south along the, uh, across Lake Champlain. So what did Arnold do then? He said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a navy right here on the, the lakes, on the shores of this lake. We're going to build a navy, and that's what he did. They... Built, uh, let's see, I believe it was uh, 18 vessels and uh, built them, uh, because they didn't have time for the wood to be seasoned, they built them out of green wood. But he had to import hundreds of folks from the the coast, had to come out with all their tools and everything to chop down trees and mill boards and do everything it takes to make a boat out in the middle of the woods with no electricity or anything else, and he built a uh, uh, a navy there on the shore and uh, mounted guns on the boats and uh, uh, and built a whole a whole naval force and uh, let's see. Uh, let's see, 15 vessels uh, that they built. And uh, as I said, they were constructed of green timber. Now, you guys are not uh, uh, not familiar with boat building or anything else. That's a big problem. Uh, it's no different than uh, 
than whiskey barrels or anything else. The whole idea of a boat is you build it with seasoned lumber. I mean, it's already been dried and shrunk. Then you build it tightly together. It's held in place with uh, wooden pegs and stuff like that and different types of uh, wooden joints. And then when that seasoned lumber that's dried out, when you put it in the water, it swells up. When it swells up, it shuts all the cracks up. It's no different than uh, than we would make wine here uh, every year. And one of my jobs was to get uh, the wine flat, the wine casks, the big wine barrels, and to try, you know, kind of wash them out, but also to run water in them. Because when you first start running water in them, uh, it leaks everywhere. I mean, there's hundreds of places where the water's leaking out. And uh, that's because it's been allowed to dry out and the wood has shrunk back to its season size. So you run the water in there until the wood swells and swells tight. And it's held in place by the steel bands. It swells tight and completely seals off. Right? That's the way it's supposed to work. But they didn't have time to season the lumber. So Arnold's ships were all made of green timber. That means that they were horribly leaky, and uh, he didn't have a, a great many of guns to mount on them. And his crew, which had already walked up to Canada, uh, fought back from Canada down back uh, south, had used up a, a great deal, almost all of their supplies. They they didn't have any new clothes. They were, you know, hungry and dirty, but they didn't give up. They didn't. They didn't leave. Arnold said, we're going to fight here. Where it's not we're just, we're just going to get our guns and fight. We're going to build a fleet of ships. And we're going to fight the English on the, with a navy on the, on the lake. And uh, they weren't going against just a small crew either. Now, let me tell you part of the, the strategy behind this. <clears throat> Arnold knew that if he could... If he could stall them long enough, that they could not force a campaign. Now, this is uh, uh, in June. If he can stall them long enough, long enough that he can get it close to the winter, then he can stop them. He could stop them from attacking uh, back into the colonies. So that was that was one of the main things in his mind. So in June, he starts building boats. Well, because there's no other way into Champlain, Guess what had to happen now? The British had to stop, and they had to build boats, too, in order to fight a naval battle. Now, they were in a bit better shape because they had a bunch of boats that they could disassemble and carry to Champlain and then reassemble. So they had a uh, had a, a great deal of, uh, of a... Uh, head start from the colonists. And uh, they ended up with uh, about 30 major vessels, uh, including 700 professional seamen, together with a, a large number of soldiers and uh, uh, artillerymen, and then a lot of Indians in canoes. And what they were going to do, they were going to destroy the rebel fleet on Lake Champlain, all right? This would allow them to continue on and take the 
the very vital American forts at Ticonderoga and Mount Independence. And this would drive a wedge between the eastern and western parts of the colony. All right. Several days behind the naval force that was attacking, the attack began on uh, October 11, 1776. Several days behind them were another uh, 7,000 British regulars in uh, 400 uh, bateaux, which are the, the troop-carrying boats. All right. So Arnold and his guys uh, have spent the uh, the last four months putting together a naval fleet, and they do. They started back in June, June, July, August, September, October, five months. And they have put a a five-month gap between the invading force and their goals. So on October 11th, 1776, the largest assembly of naval vessels ever to sail on Lake Champlain up until that time rounded the peninsula known as the Cumberland Head. All right, this is uh, this is off the end of the Valcour Island, and the boats were arranged in fighting order, uh, you know, side by side, <clears throat> and uh, and they begin fighting. Now on the uh, rebel side, there was about 800 men on the 15 boats. Like I said, it was they were smaller, leaky boats, and uh, and they were fighting at a great disadvantage. All right, the uh, British fleet had sailed south uh, from uh, Canada. It consisted of the ship Inflexible, which was a ship of 18 guns. There were two schooners, the uh, Maria and the Carlton which were 14- and 12-gun boats. And then uh, there was an enormous radio ship, which was bristling with heavy guns, and this was called the Thunder, and a large gondola, which was called uh, the Royal Convert. Together, these uh, these main ships, together with about 20 more gunboats, and a gunboat is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty big, uh, I don't know what you would call it. I'm not a, a good ship person, but it's... Uh, it's a fairly decent sized boat that usually has about it usually has one or two main guns on the front of it, and then about two dozen long boats, which are uh, boats filled with uh, uh, soldiers that can be rowed fairly fast and uh, and can attack with rifles. Anyway, they fell past the Cumberland Head, and uh, they were flying under a brisk autumn breeze, and then uh, the flagship Maria, which was captained by Thomas Pringle, uh, on board this ship was Sir Guy Carlton himself. He was a British governor of Canada. And uh, they expected to meet the rebels in the vicinity of the uh, Crown Point. And with with such a massive amount of overwhelming uh, ships and guns, they figured they would uh, they would easily burst through the uh, rebels and uh, secure a quarter, a corridor for attack for uh, His Majesty's army. Now the Americans st- saw the British coming first, and they saw the size of the oncoming fleet, the British fleet. And uh, General Waterbury actually had second thoughts 
about uh, about that battle and Arnold's plan, which was to hole up in the protected lee of Valcourt Island. He called a hasty council of war, and he started begging Arnold, please, let's let's leave the shelter of this island and, and meet the enemy in the broad lake, and and let's do this while we're trying to retreat, and, and let's get over under the guns of Ticonderoga and independence. But Arnold wasn't going to do that, because that would mean giving up too much ground, and uh, to order the lines of battle tightened, and he told the ship's commanders, prepare to fight. It was about sometime after about 10 o'clock that the British finally caught sight of the American vessel. Now, by that time, there was a brisk wind from the north, and it had taken them too far south past the island. Now, it was necessary for them to uh, change direction and sail back against the wind in order to engage the enemy. Now, Arnold was determined that the British would come to him. He wasn't going to... He wasn't going to sail out to attack. He was determined that they would come to him. They're going to have to. They were going to have to attack back and forth against the wind to get to him. Now he sent out a couple of uh, of schooners and a couple of galleys, uh, kind of like as bait and as antagonists, out into the bay. Then the gunboats came into range first, and the engagement really began in earnest about eleven o'clock. Now early on, the things took a pretty dramatic turn for the worse for the rebels. The uh, Royal Savage, which was the largest vessel in the American fleet, it ran hard aground on the corner, the southwest corner of the island, and uh, it wasn't sunk. It just couldn't maneuver. And it's, as you, uh, maybe you don't know, but if you're in a ship and you can't maneuver, then you're in bad shape. If you can't, because it, to hit something, you you can't just spin the guns around. You got to turn the ship in order to aim the guns. So if you can't turn the ship, you can't aim the guns. Well, you're in you're in trouble, and uh, so uh, already the uh, the Royal Savage has been heavily damaged by some well placed shots from the Inflexible, which was uh, which was a large schooner. I mean, a large uh, uh, ship that the British regular has, and and with such a small force, losing the Royal Savage was was a loss that the small American fleet could scarcely. Afford. So seeing her plight, <clears throat> several of the gunboats turned their fire on the helpless vessel while the crew abandoned her and fled into the woods. And uh, But not all escaped since a boarding party from the little convert quickly came aside and captured 20 of the sailors. Now, <clears throat> uh, Lieutenant Edward Longcroft, uh, one of the uh, the British... Uh, commanders, then turned the savages' guns against the rub against the, her own ships, against the rebel ships. So they got they boarded the Royal Savage, which was the largest vessel in the American fleet. Uh, I don't remember how many guns it has. I posted a uh, uh, a link to this though on uh, uh, higher up the page. Let me see if I can see it real quick here. The uh, the Royals. I don't. I don't see it listed there. Uh, I don't see it. Uh, the Inflexible, uh, which was the uh, which was the British ship, had uh, eighteen twelve pounders. Uh, 
Oh, anyway, I don't see it. Anyway, uh, so they boarded her, turned her guns against the uh, the American gunboats that were already out there, and began shelling them. Now this this didn't last very long before the uh, uh, the blazing fury of the nearby rebel fleet was turned on to the savage, and then the redcoats were forced to abandon the ship again. Now they would return again, but this time they went over to set the vessel on fire because they figured then let's just burn it so that nobody gets to use it. And uh, uh, Arnold writes in his uh, memoirs, at half past 11, the engagement became general and very warm. Some of the enemy's ships and all of their gondolas beat and rode up within musket shot of us, and they continued a very hot fire with round and grape shot. Uh, for those of you guys not familiar with this, round, of course, are the big, uh, you know, the big round heavy cannonballs. Grape shot is the way that they turn a cannon into a large uh, shotgun filled with buckshot. So you see a cannon that's firing grape. That's horrible news because uh, you get a, uh, like a 12-pound cannon which is supposed to fire a, uh, a ball about the size of a grapefruit, and instead, say there's uh, 40 or 50 uh, walnut-sized chunks of lead in there. That's that's nasty. All right. By 12:30, Carlton and several gunboats had managed to get within musket shot of the American lines, and uh, the Congress, who had uh, uh, Arnold command, took a terrific beating. Now, by mid-afternoon, uh, the Washington which was another of the uh, uh, the colonial gunboats. It had been hauled in several places, and the mast was gone. Most of the sails in shreds. On both shores, a number of Indians had been landed, and they kept up an incessant hail of musket fire upon the American vessels. So what they'd done, and there was, uh, I believe there was six or 700 Indians, and they were in very large canoes. Anyway, they put them ashore because, you know, the Indian the canoes stood no chance whatsoever against uh, against the guns of any of the ships, right? Uh, they catch one cannonball in the side of the canoe that and maybe it holds uh, 15 men or 20 men. They catch one cannonball inside and it's done. And I don't know how many Indians really practiced a lot of swimming. But regardless, they would be left way out in the middle of the lake. So they didn't do that. What they did instead was a... Uh, Put themselves ashore, and then they and they were close enough because they were between uh, the coastline and the peninsula on Valcour Island. They were close close enough that they stayed in the uh, wood line and fired continuously with musket at the ship. Now they were at a, a, just in enough range that they weren't able to fire accurately enough. But you get three or four hundred guys uh, lobbing. Uh, Lead uh, balls the size of walnuts at you, and and they're going to get lucky every once in a while. And they they did. Uh, all right, this is uh, once again from the memoirs. The Congress and Washington have suffered greatly. The latter lost her first lieutenant killed and captain and master wounded. The New York lost all her officers except her captain. The Philadelphia was hauled in so many places that she sank. About one hour after the engagement was over, the whole, killed and wounded, 
amounts to about 60. The enemy landed a large number of Indians on the island and on each shore beside us. They kept up an incessant fire on us, but did little damage. The enemy had to appearance upwards of 1,000 men in bateau prepared for boarding. We suffered much for want of seamen and gunners. I was obliged myself to point most of the guns on board the Congress, which I believed did good execution. The Congress received seven shot between wind and water and was hauled a dozen times. Had her mainmast wounded in two places and her yard in one. The Washington was hauled a number of times. Her mainmast shot through and must have a new one. Both vessels are very leaky and want repairing. All right. So it's got uh, seven shots between wind and water. All right. That's seven shots between, uh, well, just what it says, between the top of the boat and uh, the water line. All right. So the seven, seven holes in the ship didn't cause water to come in, but it had been hit seven times, and the boats weren't that big, and there were a lot of men on them. So, uh, so it's a good chance that every shot, you know, cause injury or death. Uh, Several of the other boats were hulled a dozen times. So you get a you get a grapefruit-sized hole, and especially a smaller ship below the waterline, and and it's not going to take much time for that ship to sink. Even with uh, fifteen or twenty men with buckets, uh, you know, throwing the water back out, it's still going to sink. All right, despite the best efforts, the largest ships were unable to come into range and bring most of their guns to bear. The Carlton, which was commanded by Lieutenant James Darst, put up a fierce fight and paid a heavy price. Half her crew were killed or wounded. Dacris itself was rendered unconscious, and command passed to midshipman Edward Pellew, which is only 19 years old, and Pellew decided to, uh, proceeded to distinguish himself by his bravery. By late afternoon, the Thunder and Maria still had not taken an active role in engagement. In the case of the Thunder, you know, it's kind of understandable because the 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 ship was pretty huge and it probably was just not able to come around. The Maria's lack of involvement was had some controversy about it. Uh, aboard it was Captain Thomas Pringle, who was the commander of naval operations and the governor general himself, Sir Guy Carlton. <clears throat> Later after the battle was over, uh, the officers of the ships that did engage formally accused Pringle of mismanagement, and there were, you know, there were some hints at allegations of cowardice. Who knows? Maybe, maybe the governor general himself, the assistant, the British governor general, uh, may have told him, "Don't get too close." You know, the other guys are doing enough, so don't worry. Anyway, the battle continued throughout the mid-afternoon, and. Uh, only started to stop around 5 o'clock. And finally, the British gunboats began to pull back. So the firing continued continued well into the the early darkness. And the American rebels took stock of uh, their killed and wounded and found they had uh, at least 60 killed and wounded. The Congress was damaged, along with the Washington, the New York. The Royal Savage, of course, was gone because, you know, it was... It was burned at the beginning, and the Philadelphia was sinking fast. Uh, a British boarding party had returned to the Savage and set her afire, so she burned all through the night. And then, of course, uh, once the fire got into the magazine, there was a, uh, a huge explosion, 
And uh, that was a ship that Arnold had been originally commanding. And with the loss of that ship, when all of Arnold's uh, personal papers, his documents, memoirs, all his belongings, everything. Well, at around 7 o'clock, the commanders of each of the vessels uh, assembled aboard the Congress for a council of war. The British decided they would sit, wait out the darkness, and then set off the rebel fleet uh, with the next day. However, uh, somehow the battered fleet needed to get away from the superior guns of their adversaries, adversaries and reach the, the safety at Crown Point. That way they'd be back under the guns of uh, Independence and Ticonderoga. But uh, it wasn't. It was going to be a hard thing to do. But they they decided on an unlikely and exceedingly daring plan where they would sneak around the the British fleet who were close to the shore, their oars muffled, landed out, everything else, until they got back into the open lake where they could make a run for the south. Uh, the Trumbull, who was uh, uh, commanded by Colonel Willisworth, went first. He followed by the Enterprise and the Lee, and then each of the gondolas. The Washington and finally the Congress, either the two, the two heavily damaged ships, they brought up the rear. Uh, there was a single shuttered lantern in the stern of each ship, which was meant to be followed by the vessel behind it. Now, incredibly, the entire group of ships made it past the waiting British fleet. Uh, and some of the folks have attributed this that to the uh, the British being distracted by the uh, the fire and the explosions uh, on the south shore of the island from the uh, from the savage burning. But it's still pretty amazing that all of the, of the American ships were able to participate by all of the British vessels. It's uh, it's another one of those strange but true uh, events. Now uh, Arnold put it this way. On consulting with General Waterbury and Colonel Wigglesworth, it was thought prudent to retire to Crown Point, every vessel's ammunition being nearly three-fourths spent, and the enemy's number greatly superior to us in ships and men. At 7 o'clock, Colonel Wigglesworth and the Trumbull got underway. The gondolas and small vessels followed, and the Congress and Washington brought up the rear. The enemy did not attempt to molest us. Most of the fleet is this minute came to anchor. The wind is small to the southward. The enemy's fleet is underway to leeward and beating up. And by beating up, they mean uh, they have a they're beating their drums. They're beating a drum beat, which the rowers are meant to to row accordingly to. You know, you've got a uh, like you see in all the old uh, you know the old Roman ship, uh, the slave galleys, where they're, you know, they're beating a drum, their rowers have to pay attention to it. It's no different with the, uh, with the ships that are under row. You know, they're beating up the ships, and the rowers are rowing with it. <clears throat> as soon as our leaks are stopped, the whole fleet will make the utmost dispatch to Crown Point, where I beg you will send ammunition and your further order for us. On the whole, I think we've had a very fortunate escape. Uh, governor Carlton, however, the uh, British Governor General, admitted to being really impressed with the escape of the rebels. He said, we then anchored in a line opposite the rebels within distance of cannon shot. 
expecting in the morning to be able to engage them with our whole fleet. But to our great mortification, we perceived at daybreak that they had found means to escape us unobserved by any of our guard boats or cruisers. Thus, an opportunity of destroying the whole rebel naval force at one stroke was lost. First, by an impossibility of bringing all our vessels to action, and afterwards, by the great diligence used by the enemy in getting away from us. All right? So, at daybreak, Arnold's uh, beat up and, you know, shot up fleet at Reach Schuler's Island. This was uh, approximately nine miles from Valcor. And uh, here they kind of they kind of paused for a moment. They took time to, again, take stock by the light of the day of their damages and uh, take care of their wounded, reprovision where they could, etc. There was also here that uh, Arnold wrote a letter to General Gates, and uh, as we've seen, which uh, the letter I read you earlier, his letter shares the details of the battle. Now, in a footnote to the on the letter, he was pleading for a dozen more bateaux to help tow the damaged vessels back to Crown Point because he knew that soon a reckoning would occur because the the enemy was going to pursue them. And they were going to be even more angry because the rebels had managed to slip by them. Uh, While they were taking stock, Arnold found that two more of the the vessels, they they wouldn't be able to to continue on south. And uh, these were the uh, these ships and gondolas uh, were sunk in the waters off of Shooter's Island. They transferred any of the usable gear off them, and then they went ahead. Because the ships were leaking so badly and they were so badly damaged, they went ahead and uh, finished them off and sunk them right off uh, Shooter's Island. Now, meanwhile, meanwhile the British, uh, you know, they, they all had awoken and found out that the fleet had escaped, and Carlton ordered the pursuit. So the battle now would move into the second phase, which was called the running battle. I can take care of the crisis with the Thunderer. This was the 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 really big ship that lost the leeboard and was listening so much she was taking on water. The fleet set out to catch up with the rebels. Orders were given to the ground troops to follow the rear. And thanks to a freshening wind, Good time was made by them and all their boats who were heading up the lake. Now, just north of Split Rock, the first of the rebel ships were overtaken. And in a desperate move, the hybrid Cutter Lee was run into a bay on the eastern shore where she was taken as a prize. Uh, The already battered Washington took several more broadsides, and she was forced to strike her colors. That means that, you know, the ships were flying their, their flags. And uh, and due to the uh, the method of naval warfare, then you, know, you would keep fighting, keep fighting until if you had enough, then you would you would lower your flag. And that meant, look, don't don't shoot us anymore. All right, we're through. We're giving up. So after the uh, Washington took a few more broadsides, uh, she was forced to strike her colors and. General Waterby, on board, was taken captive along with the crew. The Jersey is believed to have surrendered at Split Rock, although although some believe she was scuttled uh, at Shooter's Island. And the Congress, with a determined Benedict Arnold aboard, refused to give up. 
and this time it was the British ships with all of their massive firepower that were coming to bear on the American vessel. The gunboats uh, were still lagging behind them, and they played a, a much smaller role in the second phase of the battle because they didn't have the speed that the schooners and the, uh, the uh, masted ships had. And Arnold was desperate. He he saw that he wasn't going to be able to reach Crown Point, and uh, he knew that whatever ships, the whatever ships that they had that were captured would be used again against them. These are the ships that he'd, he'd worked so hard to see over the last five months at Skeensboro. They'd be used against him in the future. So what he did is he ran his remaining vessels aground and uh, set them on fire and made a desperate run uh, across overland to Ticonderoga. And uh, what he did is he chose a, a, a very small bay on the eastern shore. It's a little, it's a tiny cove that was called Ferris's Bay. Today the place is known as uh, Arnold's Bay in, uh, uh, let's see, in, let me look at the map here. Arnold's Bay in Panton, Vermont. And uh, so what he did was he stopped the invading British forces for approximately six months. What this ended up doing was it put the British invading force, they were ready to invade now. Unfortunately, it was winter. Now it was winter. Now they did do some more damage, but but now it was winter, and they couldn't continue their invasion because it was winter. So what they ended up doing was uh, uh, was stopping for the winter, and uh, and uh, this placed the invasion uh, a year back. Now this was. This was a blessing for the Continentals because that meant that they had another year now to prepare. Whenever the uh, whenever Burgoyne's campaign began, this ran from uh, June to October in 1777. They were a much more prepared, uh, a much more prepared army. All right, so now we're going to jump back to the Burgoyne campaign. And as I told you, there was a three-pronged attack that was designed on uh, hammering a wedge uh, into New York, splitting the forces, and uh, and then they were going to be, uh, once they split the forces, then they would concentrate on one group and then the other and annihilate them. And uh, that's how the plan was running. So... <clears throat> You have one group that is uh, invading from Lake Ontario and uh, landing at uh, Fort Oswego and invading from there. You have the other one that's uh, invading from St. John's in Canada. And then you had uh, the last force, which was invading up the Hudson Valley. All right. what we'll do now is we'll move to the involvement of the uh, St. Ledger's forces. St. Ledger 
was attacking, like I said, from Lake Ontario. He was going to attack and uh, attack. I'm checking, making sure that I'm. I haven't looked at the the chat for a while. I'll make sure that I'm. I'm looking in there and make sure that nobody's asking questions or uh, or anybody saying, "Hey, we can't hear." Uh, so <clears throat> uh, we're good. All right. Uh, they're going to attack Fort Stanwicks, and the reason that Stanwicks was so important is because uh, at this time in the colonies, you know, in in the Americas, there there were very few roads. Uh, there were a few trails, but there were very few roads anywhere, and the the only way you're going to get somewhere was either walking through the woods or walking on uh, one of the few trails that went somewhere or going by river. And the there was actually a river uh, road where you could go all the way from uh, the coast, you could always go from the eastern coast to Lake Ontario all the way across New York by river. And uh, the only place that uh, that there wasn't actual water was right around Fort Stanwicks. And uh, that was the uh, – there was a, a small area that was probably between a mile to six miles wide, depending on the amount of rainfall they'd had at the time, uh, where you would have to do a, uh, a portage. You'd have to get out of the water and carry your – your boat and your goods or whatever, like a mile or two miles, and you could eat back in the water and uh, and continue on. <clears throat> so Fort Stanwicks guarded the portage area, and like I said, having a uh, having a uh, a way to get from the coast to Lake Ontario was extremely important. Uh, economically for goods and services, and also for any type of uh, movement of uh, materials, troops, etc. So Ledger was going to come in and take Fort Stanwix. Now, Fort Stanwix was an old fort that had been built by the British uh, and had gone and had been built by the British uh, forces for the uh, French and Indian War. And then it had kind of gone into disrepair, and then they had rebuilt it and refinished it, and then uh, and they finally decided they didn't need it, and they kind of abandoned it. Well, as soon as the folks in that area heard about the events of April 19, 1775, they immediately went over and reoccupied the fort as a colonial fort and began to... Uh, to refurbish it and rebuild it and to use it as one of the colony's forts. St. Ledger was going to attack the fort. That would give him control of the waterway from uh, uh, Lake Ontario in onto the East Coast. It would also help uh, uh, isolate the cannoli, cannoli, colonial forces and uh, separate them. <clears throat> All right. Uh, 
and I've talked to you guys before about Fort Stanwick's and the Battle of Oriskany, but we're going to go through it again real quick because it was a very important, uh, a very important battle. Uh, from the very beginning of, of the American Revolution, the British they understood the importance of gaining control of the Lake Champlain, Lake George, Hudson River water route. This would cut off the colonies from north of New York to those from the south, and Almost all the troubles that were leading to the war, they had originated in New England. The British said if they could if they could put down the rebellion there in New England, the rest of the colonies would just give up because they weren't, you know, they they weren't part of what the British considered to be the folks that started this anyway. <clears throat> so the British dominance of New York uh, would also make it difficult or impossible for the Americans to move troops and supplies between the northern and the southern colonies. You know, if, they, if the British regulars controlled New York and the uh, and egress or, the, or, or entrance to, then they would prevent the northern colonies from, from sending anything to the southern or the southern to sending anything to the northern. So the British made their first attempt to seize the waterway in 1776. So that's what I was explaining to you earlier. The the British army under uh, Sir William Howe was successful in taking New York City and some of the lower Hudson Valley area. And then the force moving south from from, from Canada under Guy Carleton uh, got stalled at Fort Ticonderoga. Like we said, by the time he'd gotten to Ticonderoga, it was wintertime. And that reinforced the retreat of those forces back into Canada. Then in 1777, uh, Burgoyne, who had been with the British forces coming from Canada back in 76, proposed that the plan be tried again, this time uh, with himself in command, which would make it uh, you know, a success if he was in command. So uh, the plans were approved by Lord Germain and uh, and it became the Burgoyne Campaign of 1777, all right? So Burgoyne would advance south from Canada up to uh, Lake Champlain, capture Ticonderoga, and then march south along the Hudson Valley to Albany. Now, there he joined uh, Howe, who would advance north along the Hudson River from New York City, which is already under control. Remember, the uh, Howe and his troops had already captured New York City, uh, uh, almost all of New York, and they had they had run the uh, the American forces uh, out, and uh, you know beat them se- pretty severely several times, and pushed them all the way across the uh, uh, the Delaware. All right. Uh, Saint Ledger would come in as a third force, uh, advancing west along the Mohawk River Valley. And St. Ledger's force was to act as a diversion uh, which to to pull away the folks from the, the, the two main attacks. And then also grabbing the loyalists uh, as they were going along and building a, uh, you know, a much larger force and securing the western water, water route between Canada and New York City. However, Howe became engaged in a campaign to capture Philadelphia, 
uh, well, this was a plan that uh, Germain had also approved, believing that the American General George Washington would become a hindrance to New York and that Howe would be done in time to reach Burgoyne. But he would never reach Albany. St. Ledger became entangled in a 21-day siege of Fort Stanwood and was forced to retreat to Canada as American forces from the Albany area began to advance upon him. Burgoyne, however, was never informed in a timely manner of his colleague's setbacks, and he, he kept on marching to Albany. After capturing uh, Ticonderoga with ease and a speed that really pretty much shook the Patriot morale, Burgoyne continued his march south, defeating the American troops at uh, Hubbardton and forcing the evacuation of Forts Anne and Edward. But then his luck began to run out. Uh, there was a column of Hessians, and these, remember, are the German mercenaries, uh, the same folks, not the same troops, but the same type of troops uh, that Washington captured uh, uh, at the end of 1776 uh, at Trenton. Anyway, there was a column of Hessians that uh, Burgoyne sent out to raid Bennington, and they were defeated by troops under the Brigadier General Don, John Stark and Seth Warner. Continuing southward, Burgoyne crossed near the present-day Stillwater, where the Americans under Gates, who had replaced Schuler as the American commander, had taken out a position at Bemis Heights, and that's where the Battle of Bemis Heights began. Burgoyne tried to break through the American lines at Freeman's Farm and at Beeman Heights, and both attempts failed. And the British commander, finding himself outnumbered and surrounded and unable to retreat, surrendered on October 17, 1777. Burgoyne's defeat and surrender at Saratoga, coupled with the victory months prior at uh, Fort Stanwyck, led directly to the alliances between the United States and France and the Netherlands. The alliances, these alliances that were made, have helped to sustain the new United States throughout the rest of the war and directly contributed to the final victory and British surrender at Yorktown in 1781. All right. So what I'm telling you guys about the uh, the importance of the Burgoyne campaign, that's why. Up until the uh, the defeat of Burgoyne and his surrender there, uh, the uh, at Saratoga, the the French had been reluctant to involve themselves because. Uh, the colonists were an untried force, and while the French were very eager to to have an alliance with them, if they were in a position to kick the uh, England's hiney, they weren't going to take the chance on open warfare with England unless they knew they had an edge, and the edge would be that the colonials were good enough to to do what they said they were going to do, all right? And the way that the uh, that the French figured that they were good enough to do what they said they were going to do is they defeated uh, Burgoyne at Saratoga, and they defeated the uh, St. Ledger earlier at Stanley and stopped that prong. So those two, the two battles together, helped 
secure the allegiance uh, and the alliances between the United States, France, and the Netherlands. And as you know, with the support of the French, because they, they uh, uh, declared war on England, that caused England to have to shift uh, men, materials, and supplies uh, over to fight the and defend themselves against the French. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but, you know, the England's fighting forces were not infinite. You know, they had to, they couldn't send as many troops as they would like to uh, to the colonies because that would leave the homeland of England, the island of England, open to invasion by France, who was just a stone throw away. They also had to devote a lot of their shipping uh, to war with the French. So now you have the French Navy and the fledgling American Navy both uh, crediting on the uh, the English Navy. That means supplies, arms, ammunition, food, etc. was not making it to uh, uh, the British forces fighting in America, and uh, and it proved a, uh, an unbearable weight for them to uh, to take. So here we are in October 17, 1777. We're going to surrender. The uh, colonial forces and the new United States make an alliance with France and the Netherlands. And this uh, is the actual turning point of the war. Uh, yes, we fought on. We, they kept fighting until uh, 1781 which was the surrender at Yorktown. And then uh, there were two more years of uh, uh, negotiations and jockeying for position until the war ended in uh, uh, 1783. But with the surrender of Burgoyne's forces on the uh, 1777, the tides turned, and then it pretty much went downhill. It continued to be bloody and horrific until 1781, and then there's a British surrender at Yorktown. And the two more years, and the two more years was basically just, as I said, it was the, uh, it was then, there wasn't a whole lot more fighting. It was mainly uh, trying to get good terms. <clears throat> All right, so <clears throat> let's move back to St. Ledger, because St. Ledger uh, was supposed to rally the Tories, bring them into the force, and also distract the uh, American forces in uh, western New York and keep them from joining the battle uh, against uh, Burgoyne's force invading from the north and Howe's force uh, uh, invading from the south. What happened is Ledger's forces got Stanwix. Now, Stanwix had been uh, had been uh, reinforced, had been you know remodeled and reinforced and, and fixed up right on, uh, uh, I believe they began on Independence Day on, uh, uh, in 1776. So they had a year to get the fort ready. And uh, uh, he had his forces... Uh, uh, they had their forces, the American forces, in Stanwix. Now, Stanwix came under siege by uh, St. Ledger, 
and early on, uh, or not too far into the siege, there was a relief force that came up from the Moorock Valley uh, under command of General Nicholas Herkimer. Now, this group was about 800 men, and they were part of, they were uh, actually the whole Tryon County Militia and a party of Oneida Indians. And we're going to talk about the importance of that in a minute. Uh, anyway, these guys are marching to Stanwix because they're going to try and uh, attack the British forces at Stanwix so that they can unite with them and, and help to break the siege. So St. Ledger, once he heard about these folks coming, he authorized uh, an intercept force. And uh, this consisted, consisted of a... Uh, uh, light Infantry Detachment, uh, Sir John Johnson's Royal Regiment of New York, and the Indian allies from the Six Nations and other tribes that had rounded folks up, and from the Indian Department Rangers, uh, which was about, uh, well, it was well over 450 men. And uh, <clears throat> the Loyalists and the Indian force ambushed Herkimer's force in a small valley uh, about six miles east of Fort Stanwix. Now, what was supposed to happen was Herkimer's force was supposed to march to uh, Stanwix. And when they got fairly close, uh, they were supposed to fire uh, some of their artillery. And when they fired their artillery, what would happen was would be a, uh, a force would sally forth from Fort Stanwix fighting their way to meet the force that Herkimer was bringing forth, and then they would fight their way back into the fort, and hopefully it would allow them to break the siege. So Herkimer's forces uh, got to uh, got to the area they were supposed to be at, and this was on uh, uh, the morning of the 6th, yeah, on August 6th. Uh, they had reached where they were, they had reached their position, and they were there waiting. They were having a council war. They hadn't yet, they didn't yet hear the signal from the fort, which they were waiting to hear, which is the, the cannon fire from the fort. That means they begin their attack, and then they knew that the soldiers from Stanwix would be attacking out of the fort. But his captains kept pressing him to begin the attack anyway. And they even accused Herkimer of being a Tory because his brother was serving under St. Ledger. And Herkimer, who was his honor, was upset by this, decided to order the column to go ahead and march on Fort Stanwix. Now, this was a mistake. This is where folks allow their... Uh, their egos to get the better of them. Instead of just saying, "Yeah, whatever, whatever you guys say, it doesn't matter," because I know I know I'm right. I know I'm, I'm making the best decision. He allowed these guys to bait him into making a premature attack. And what that did was that sucked him into uh, a pre-made ambush about uh, six miles from the fort. The road gets uh, more than fifty feet down into a marsh ravine where there was a stream about three feet wide that meandered along the bottom of the 
uh, a little ravine. Uh, there were two Seneca war chiefs who chose this place to set up an ambush. Now, I told you guys before, I uh, uh, I spend a good deal of time up in New York, and I make sure that I always <clears throat> uh, I always go to the different battle sites that I can get to, and I've been to uh, the Oriskany battlefield, and I've walked along that trail, and yeah, it's uh, it is uh, a perfect place for an ambush. Uh, you're you walk down into this uh, into this ravine. And because uh, the bottom of the ravine is kind of flat and, and a bit of a marsh, there's like uh, seven-foot-tall grass that fills it up. And then there's just a tiny stream, very tiny, that actually runs through it. Uh, you know, it places uh, no more than, you know, like a, a foot or two across. But it's a continuously running stream. Anyway, <clears throat> the uh, Seneca War Chiefs had set up an ambush here in the stream. Now, uh, certainly, you know, you can uh, you can Monday morning quarterback this, and you can you can figure out uh, a, a much better way to fight it than it was fought. But they weren't expecting the troops to be there. They figured them to be uh, closer to Fort Stanwix and engaged in the siege of the fort. <clears throat> All right. So about uh, ten o'clock that morning, Herkimer's column men with Herkimer on horseback near the front uh, descended down into the ravine. They crossed the stream and began ascending the other side. Now, w- what really happened is they, the guys, it had been a, a long, hot march up to this point. The folks got, the uh, leading troops got to the stream and kind of fanned out along the edges of the stream and were actually uh, on their bellies or kneeled down into the stream getting a drink and the ambushing the ambushing forces were supposed to wait uh until until the whole group had got into the ambush site so they could take the whole column by surprise but they couldn't contain the, they couldn't uh, control themselves and they began the ambush early <clears throat> anyway they shot uh, a good number uh, of the folks, and the men who were there drinking actually fell right into the stream and bled into the stream. And, and they said that the stream ran solid red, blood red, uh, for a couple of miles. Because, like I said, it's a tiny stream, and if you have a couple of dozen bodies bleeding into it, it, it very quickly turned into a, a river of blood. Uh Anyway, leading the first regiment was uh, uh, Hori and Colonel Ebenezer Cox. Cox was shot off his horse and killed in the first valley. Herkimer, he spun his horse around to see the action and was uh, immediately struck by a ball which shattered his leg and killed the horse. And His guys grabbed him and uh, turned him over to a beech tree uh, where his men told him, let's go, let's get out of here. You know, we, we've got to, we've got to, We've got to retreat. We've got to surrender. Uh, Herkimer said, he goes, hey, I'm not going anywhere. This is where we fight. This is where I fight the enemy. And he sat down against a tree. He took out his pipe and some tobacco, packed the tobacco in his pipe, lit it up, 
and began to direct the battle from right, seated right there at the tree. Now, as the trap had been sprung too early, a large group of the column had not even gotten into the ravine or gotten into the, the ambush. Now, sad to say, most of these men panicked and fled. And because they took off running and they weren't standing and fighting, uh, a large group of Indians started chasing them. Of course, they were just shooting them down and killing them uh, in great numbers. And they said that the the string of dead and wounded, there was a trail of them that actually strung out for several miles because they wouldn't fight. Let me tell you, when you when you decide to run, especially if you've got a whole column of guys running, that means you're facing away from the enemy. You can't shoot at them because you're facing away. That means that they can shoot at you. They can run up behind you and shoot you without really any fear, any damage, anything. They can, they can actually run up to you and crack you in the back of the head with a stick because you're not facing them. You're running. You're fleeing. And you're not killing any of them. They're just killing you at their leisure. And that's what they did. So uh, I would encourage any of you fighting uh, as part of the American Revolutionary War Force uh, in uh, 1777 not to uh, flee as a whole column. All right? Make your points. Uh, turn, defend yourselves, and uh, and do it correctly. They didn't. <clears throat> Between the loss of the, the the column's rear and those that were killed or wounded in the initial volley, there was only about half of Berkmer's men who were still fighting after 30 minutes into the battle. And uh, the attackers, most of those who were not armed with muskets, waited for the flash of the opponent's musket fire before rushing into attack with a tomahawk before the, uh, the defenders had time to reload. Now, this was planned out. All right, the, uh, there was a large number of, of the uh, attacking Indian force. They've been told, you don't even load your muskets. Don't even take your muskets because we're not going to use them. All right? As I told you, the grass was really high, really thick. So they could get in close to uh, uh, to the colonials, to the, uh, to the Americans. One of them would jump up and then immediately jump back down the uh, American forces would shoot at them, and when they once they shot at them, they're firing a single shot, uh, musket reloaded. I mean, a, uh, uh, a single shot uh, musket that has to be re- reloaded, which is a very time-consuming uh, practice. And as soon as they saw that flash and they heard the uh, report, they would dive in with a tomahawk and chop the guy to pieces. So the great majority of all the fighting was at close in distance. And and the uh the American defenders were also remember I said they're militiamen, which means they weren't armed with the typical military muskets that had bayonets. So they're trying to fight at a disadvantage. You know, they're trying to reload their musket that doesn't have a bayonet. And here comes a guy from five or six feet away with uh, a knife, a nice long knife and a tomahawk. And they've got the, the, the musket. They can try and use it as a club, but it was usually too late, and uh, they would be taken and killed. 
uh, let's see. Uh, anyway, uh, there was a rain. And now during this rain, uh, there was kind of like a lull in the fighting during the heavy rain. And at this time also, the uh, Herkimer's forces decided on a new tactic. What he did is he got word to his men, and this was done very quickly uh, during uh, about a 30-minute lull in fighting. He said, all right, you guys team up. So now they're in groups of twos and threes. They were, they could only, he told everybody they had to fight in pairs, all right? What this did is now it's not just one guy uh, against another guy with a tomahawk and a knife. The one guy fires, the Indian would attack with a tomahawk and a knife. Well, here's the, his buddy is right there with a loaded musket. Bang, he dropped him. And in this way, uh, they kept up their defense for a good, uh, you know, a good while. And the Parker men ended up rallying and fighting their way out of the ravine uh, to the crest just on the west of the ravine. Now, Johnson, who was concerned about the malicious tenacity, returned to the British camp and requested some reinforcements from St. Ledger shortly before the thunderstorm broke out. So another 70 men were heading back with him to the battle. And uh, while the thunderstorm was going on, that's where Herkimer regrouped the militia, got them on high ground, got his men fighting in pairs and fighting in relays and firing in relays. So there was never a spot where all of the guns were fired at once and then they could be attacked uh, in hand-to-hand combat. They made sure that any time that anybody fired, there was always another relay waiting to fire and... uh, and there were also, by this time, quite a few extra muskets because a good many of them ended up been wounded and killed. So there was a good many of muskets, so a lot of the guys were just sitting there loading muskets as fast as they could and handing them to the relay shooters. Uh, so uh, let's see, Butler, who was the leader of the Rangers, he took time during the thunderstorm to question some of the captives, and he found out the he found out about the three cannon signal. And then when Johnson and the force reinforcements arrived, he convinced them to turn their coats inside out, disguise themselves as a relief party coming from the fort. So when the fighting restarted after the rain, Johnson and the rest of the Royal Yorkers, uh, these were part of the British groups, joined the battle. But one of the Patriot militiamen, uh, which was Captain Jacob Gardnier, recognized the face of a loyalist neighbor. And so these guys were, they weren't attacking. They were actually riding up to the American forces trying to act as uh, as allies. But uh, Jacob Gardnier, one of the captains, he recognized him. He actually got the word out to the Turkmen's uh, forces to, hey, these guys are not from the fort. They're Tories. Anyway, uh, when they finished riding up, they got unloaded on, and they got uh, they they got shot to pieces. <clears throat> uh, anyway, the the news eventually got back to Stanwix about what was going on. At Fort Stanwix, they didn't know exactly what was going on, and when they heard about what was going on. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Marius Willett, with a group of about 250 men, did sally forth from the fort. 
And they, while they didn't come to the aid of Herkimer's forces, what they did do was, uh, as they were coming, as they passed through the uh, the almost deserted enemy camps south of the fort, they drove away the few uh, British Indian guards left in the camps, and they absolutely raided and destroyed the Indian and British camps. So while the while the Indian and British forces were attacking uh, Herkimer's forces, the guys from Stanwix came out, completely destroyed their camps, took all their possessions, their food, uh, everything. And, and one of the things that the Indians had been told was, look, uh, you guys come and fight with us, and we'll let you keep all of the stuff that you, all of the booty that you take from the uh, from the rebels. Well, not only did they find out that that they were getting a good number of their men killed by Herkimer's forces, the folks from Stanwix came out and, and raided and destroyed the camp, took all of their uh, supplies and everything, and took all of the stuff they had already stolen. So, one of the Indians who'd been guarding the camp, came running out to the rest of the Indians who were attacking Herkimer's forces and started yelling out uh, this signal for the Indian troops to leave. And they went back to try and protect their women and the possessions that they had, their supplies, etc. And once the Indians left, the the smaller number of the German Hessians and the Loyalist combatants who were also attacking, well, they... They figured it was time to go, too. <clears throat> so they go back, and they find out that their camp has been destroyed. And the Indians were just, the Indians fighting with the British were just furious. This also allowed Herkimer's force to withdraw and to make their escape back. Now, Herkimer's force was pretty well damaged. Uh, Herkimer himself was seriously wounded. Most of his captains were killed. They retreated back to Fort Dayton. Herkimer was carried back by his men from the battlefield, and when he got back to Dayton, his leg was amputated. Remember, he'd been shot in the leg, and the the ball had gone into his leg and broken the bone. Now, you guys know that, that this was, uh, you know, breaking a bullet, breaking a bone in a body was a death sentence unless you amputated. And it and he waited too long because they they told him he had to amputate and he didn't want to and he didn't want to. Finally he got pretty sick and they said we're gonna have to so they they cut off his leg at a certain point. Well it wasn't good enough because gangrene had already set in. And they cut it off at a higher point and a higher point and they cut it off again, eventually cutting off the leg uh parts of the leg I think four or five times and it didn't matter. Uh, they also, one of the surgeons said, well, he's he's really sick now, so what we're going to have to do, we have to bleed him, which was a common practice back then, which is to uh, cut open one of the smaller uh, veins and let the, quote, bad blood out in order to fix the wound. And they did that, which, as you know, is no help. And Merkimer died. So... While well, the Indians retrieved uh, most of their dead from the battlefield the following day, many of the Indian dead and wounded patriots were left on the field. And when Arnold's relief column finally got there several weeks later, they said the stench and the whole scene was just grisly. 
and and horrible. It was one of the it was one of the most bloody battles of the American Revolution. Well, what this did was it stopped St. Ledger's attack into the Mohawk Valley and turned him around. So he could no longer be of any use to Burgoyne. And because of that, Burgoyne ended up fighting on his own, uh, also because of Howe's uh, determination to take Philadelphia, but left Burgoyne alone. This eventually, because St. Ledger could not reach with the uh, matchup with Burgoyne, caused Burgoyne's defeat later on at uh, Saratoga. So this was a very important battle. And uh, and I encourage you to read more about it. I see we're getting here close to the end. So I encourage you to read more about uh, the Battle of Oriskany and uh, and if you're anywhere near there, visit the battlefield. Now, I put a bunch of uh, uh, bunch of URLs earlier on in it for images of the battle and maps of the battlefield, etc. I'll try and do that from now on when we're having uh, when we're having the history story, so you can have some some images, some pictures to look at, and stuff like that. I want to thank everybody for uh, for tuning in tonight. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Jim for calling in. Uh, I want to thank uh, uh, my co-host for uh, being there every week with me and doing a great job. I'd like to thank everybody who's working hard, wherever they are. I'd like to thank everybody in the Appleseed Project, and then I'd like to thank uh, everybody who is who is doing something uh, for the nation, for their self, for their home, their their family, the nation. Everybody who's doing something uh, in order to in order to safeguard the freedoms and liberties that we enjoy by virtue of living in this nation, all right. Uh, and I'd like to pray for our nation, pray for Appleseed. Uh, may God watch over and guide our hands in what we do because our our cause is just, and uh, God bless all of you out there working uh, and pushing the program forward and taking care of yourselves and your families and the nation, all right? Uh, we'll see you this next Thursday, uh, 7th Central, and uh, we'll see you then, all right? Thanks, guys, and
We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.